Good morning again, Valley Bible Church. I love that hymn because it is a hymn of praise, and that is what we're going to be talking about this morning in Psalm 135, a psalm of praise. We are going to go through just a little bit of review. Um, as, uh, as Ben mentioned, I think it was 2005 because I noticed the copyright on the song that Gunnar Tesdall wrote. We started a summer series called Lord of the Song, and uh, the purpose was during the summertime when we were between books, we would uh, choose selected psalms and, and go through them because the psalms have always been a part, a huge part of worship everywhere throughout the church and throughout all of church history. And um, so the last time we've done this was 2018. So many of you have not been part of uh, this series, The Lord of the Song, and we were gonna, we'll be going through, I think it's around five or six weeks in the middle of September, we will be starting the book of First Timothy. So now is the time to start reading First Timothy every day until we start uh, for life groups in the middle of September. But before we get there, we're going to be talking about the Psalms. And I want to do just a quick review of what the Psalms are. I think when we started this series, I know we did, we did an entire message talking about the Psalms what they are, where they come from, the structure of them, how to read them properly. I'm just going to give more of a cursory review of that this morning. And the, the Psalms are a collection of 150 Psalms, and that is called the Psalter. The Psalter was the worship book of the nation of Israel. When they came together, they would sing these Psalms always in the courts of the Lord when they came together to worship together. We don't know the tunes of those songs. We just know that they sang them. Uh, oftentimes people think that the Jewish music that we hear today is the type of music that they, um, that they, that, that they had, the tune that is. That, that kind of music, that, um, that mode of music actually came from Europe somewhere. So we don't know what the tunes were to any of these psalms. Um, we don't know that there were books either, probably not. People either memorize them or there was a, an antiphonal uh, singer. The, the leader would sing maybe a line and the people would, would, uh, uh, would respond. But there are, uh, there are 150 of these psalms. And the Psalter is a compilation of five different books. Maybe you did not know that. But book one are Psalms 1 through 41. Book two are Psalms 42 through 72. Book three are Psalms 73 through 89. Book four are Psalms 90 through 106. And book five are Psalms 107 through 150. By the way, it is called the book of Psalms. And yet the individual psalm is called a psalm. So today we're looking at 135. It is not Psalms 135. It is Psalm 135. And so we want you to be properly biblically educated. The date of the Psalms, they were written over a period of 1,000 years. Think about that. How long is 1,000 years? Our nation is only 250 years old. We've got a long ways to go to 1,000. 1,000 years is a long time. From the time of Moses, we think that Moses wrote Psalm 90. Through the return of Israel from captivity in the time of Ezra, 444 B.C., Nearly 450 years before the birth of Christ, 
these psalms had, were already complete, having been written over a period of 1,000 years. These have never been in question in terms of the canon of the Old Testament. They have always been there, and the nation of Israel has taken a good, uh, good care of uh, the, those manuscripts and those psalms. And so 1,000 years it took to write these psalms, and that is just an amazing thing to think about. There are different kinds of psalms, and generally they follow these classifications. There are individual laments, and those uh, where there's a complaint, and these are the psalms that start off with, nobody likes me, everybody hates me, I guess I'll eat some worms, you know, the one where they're just, oh, life is horrible. And there are a lot of psalms like that because life is like that. But there are individual laments. There are national laments where the writer is lamenting over the sin of the nation and asking for repentance. There are declarative praise psalms, which is one, what ours is today. Descriptive praise psalms. Psalms of the people are called hymns. Royal psalms that speak of the king. Enthronement psalms that speak of the one who's becoming the king. And most of those psalms are messianic in nature. They're looking forward to being fulfilled in the person of Christ. Wisdom psalms that just basically teach wisdom for living, skill in living. And pilgrim psalms. There's a whole body of what we call pilgrim psalms because every year the Jews would go up three times a year to the festivals. And as they were marching to Zion, going up to Jerusalem, they would sing these psalms and they knew them all by heart. They knew the melodies. We don't know what the melodies are, but they would sing them in preparation for the great festivals in Jerusalem as they were going up. And so these are the types of psalms. The psalms are songs. They were music. We have a tendency to just read them. We are going to read Psalm 135 this morning. We're going to talk about Psalm 135. We should probably write some music to it, right? And there are some churches nowadays that are recovering the singing of psalms, and they're putting all these psalms to music, and that is a pretty good idea because they, they cover so many aspects of life and so many human emotions and so many things about God himself. Psalms are lyric poetry. They are poetry. And they fall under the general category of wisdom literature in the Old Testament, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. So they're wisdom literature because they're always teaching something about life. How do we live life? What is life like? And there are two main literary techniques, literary devices that are found in the Psalms. And we, we, before we went into this quite deep, but just let me just say very, very quickly, the two literary devices that are used are parallelisms, and that is that the, uh, rather than rhyming in poetry like we have today, you know, where you, 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 you have roses are red, violets are blue, da-da-da-da-da, and so are you, you know, we, we have this, this, this meter, and we, we rhyme the words. Hebrew poetry does not do that. It rhymes thoughts. So in one verse, you have two lines, and those lines, they, they rhyme with one another, and they say the same thing in a different way, or they say the same thing as a completed thought, but you have these parallelism throughout to, to, to understand the Psalms, and you have to really look for them if you really want to understand the Psalms properly. And you have figures of speech. You really need to understand 
figures of speech. Go back to your high school literature or college literature or pick, just look up online, you know, figures of speech. They're, some of them are very simple. Some of them we, we've seen, even we've sung today. Um, in the, the Lord of the Song, uh, it begins by saying, life is a song. Life isn't a song. Life is life. It's a metaphor. We say someone, that man is strong as a lion. That's a simile. He is like a lion. But when we say that man is a lion, it means the same thing, but it's a metaphor. And to understand the different types of, of, uh, of figures of speech will increase your enjoyment of the psalm. Because let me say this about the psalms. They're very intricate. They're very detailed. The grammar, the syntax, the structure the, the figures of speech, the parallelism, all these things come together. I believe that they're much more technical than the writings of the Apostle Paul. I don't know what you think, Mike, but I do. Psalms course in seminary was, uh, was like the, the, the hardest course to take. And, and I loved it because it drove deep in grammar and syntax and structure in the Hebrew language. And we oftentimes think of these people that live you know, thousands of years ago, oh, they were backwards and uneducated. I'm telling you what, when you read the Psalms and you see the structure and the grammar and the syntax and the figures of speech, these were smart people inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. So these are the Psalms. We're going to jump into our declarative praise Psalm this morning, which is Psalm, Psalm, singular, 135. If you have our Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 135. We're going to read it. And we're going to stand as we do so. We could, I guess I could sing through it for you, uh, or we could try and make something up along as we go along, but I'm just going to read it at this point. The Word of God, Psalm 135. Please give attention to the reading of his word. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Praise him, O servants of the Lord, you who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God, Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praises to his name, for it is lovely. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his own possession. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven, and in earth, in the seas, and in all deeps. He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightnings for the rain. He brings forth the wind from his treasuries. He smote the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and beast. He sent signs and wonders into your midst, O Egypt, upon Pharaoh and all his servants. He smote many nations. He slew mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan. And he gave their land as a heritage a heritage to Israel, his people. Your name, O Lord, is everlasting. Your remembrance, O Lord, throughout all generations. For the Lord will judge his people and will have compassion on his servants. The idols of the nations are but silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear nor is there any breath at all in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them. Yes, everyone who trusts in them. O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. 
O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who revere the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord from Zion who dwells in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. And God's people said, Amen. Please be seated. We thank you, Father, for your word. Help us to praise you. Assist us. Fill our mouths and our hearts with the breath of your spirit and the words of praise that would bring honor to you forever and ever. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a typical praise psalm. In fact, the very first line gives you the subject. He says, praise the Lord. And the last line of the psalm is praise the Lord. And the word praise the Lord in Hebrew is hallelujah. Whenever you say hallelujah, you are speaking Hebrew. In speaking Hebrew, hallelujah, you're saying praise be to Yahweh. Hallelujah. Praise be to Yahweh. So that's the subject. It is a typical praise psalm. And you, as you read through the psalms and you see these psalms that begin with praise the Lord or calling to bless the Lord, it is, also, it is always a, a typical format. There's usually a, a call to praise at the very beginning, calling God's people together to come and to praise him. Then there is a cause for praise. Why do we praise him? How do we engage our minds in saying the things of praise to him? And then at the end, there is a renewed call to praise. And we saw that in verses 1 through 4, the call to praise, 5 through 18, the body of the psalm, the cause for praise, and then 19 through 21, a renewed call to come back, O God's people, and praise him. Praise is essential to worship because God is central to our worship. And when God and his character are not central to our worship, then we have man-centered worship. If he's not the center, and we come on Sunday mornings, we should be front and center. Our eyes should be upwards, not so much on the screen, but we're looking beyond the screen through the words to a God who is high and holy and lifted up. Our eyes are focused on him. And that is what worship is all about. If it is not, then our focus is on the band, the decor, a, a, a song that speaks to, you know, just that's all man-centered. Worship is always God-centered. Worship that lasts. Man-centered worship will not bring glory to God. And man-centered worship will not satisfy our heart either. And so he begins in these first three verses where he says, Praise the Lord, hallelujah. Then he says, praise the name of the Lord. He's going to say that again. Praise him, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord in the courts of the house of God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praises to his name, for it is lovely. Five times there is a call to praise. Praise the Lord, praise his name. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise his name. Praise the Lord. Five times. The emotion of praise is joy. That doesn't mean every time you praise the Lord or you read a psalm, your heart is going to be filled with joy. But we are commanded to praise the Lord. And and for the Jew, for a faithful Jewish believer, it was necessary for them to come into the temple and to give praise to God. It was part of life. Let all that has breath praise the Lord. The happy... uh, product of praising him even when we're commanded and we don't feel like it is God may bring joy into our heart because we're saying things that are true about God 
So he, there's this great call for God's people to come into the courts and all the leaders and all the people, and he's calling them five times, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. His name is to be praised. And he gives a couple of reasons, verses 1 through 3. He is praised for his goodness. God is good. Verse 3, praise Yahweh, that's the name of the Lord, for Yahweh is good. Very simple statement. God is good. We might take that for, for granted, thinking that uh, goodness is just a, a, a trite thing because we use that in a trite way in, in our context of living. You might be buying some insurance, and the insurance guy will say, well, you have three options. There's good, better, and best. And good is only just, yeah, you don't want to get that right because it's just good. No, when we talk about God being good, it it's encompasses everything of his righteousness and his holiness. In him, there is no lack of goodness He is perfectly good. It speaks to his character, and we are praising him for the character of his goodness. In fact, in Romans chapter 3, where we learn that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, the Apostle Paul quotes Psalm 14, I believe it is, where he says, there is no one who is good, not even one. When we are in our sins, we are not good. There is nothing good in us. Paul would say later, there's no good thing that dwells in me. But remember the man who came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life, good teacher? And Jesus said, why do you call me good? Because no one is good but God alone. And he was trying to lead him and evoke his faith and his understanding that he is the Lord. Jesus is good and no one is good but God and Jesus is deity. And he was trying to get that man to say that, to understand that. So praise Yahweh because Yahweh is good. And the second line of verse 3, it's a parallelism. Sing praises. And now he says, not just speak praise. Sing praises to his name for it is lovely. His name is lovely. His name is unique. His name is beautiful. His name describes who he is. So it's a parallel thought. Praise the Lord because he's good. Praise his name because it is good. Because his name describes who he is. The name Yahweh. You know the story in Exodus. Moses sees the burning bush and he comes up and he's having this conversation. And he said, well, who are you? Who shall I say sent me? And he says, I am that I am. He uses the the Hebrew word to be, and he just simply says, I am the existing one. I am the self-existing one. He is the eternal. He is the ultimate being in all of the universe. There is no one like him. There is no God but God. And he alone is God. He is not contingent upon air and water and food to, to exist. We, are, we must have those things for us to exist, and we must even have him. We need him for our existence, for our, our, to be able to breathe and our hearts to beat because he wills it to be so. But he is the necessary being in all the universe Everything else is contingent upon him. And so when we say, oh, praise the name of the Lord, oh, man, we're talking about something very deep. His name is incomprehensible. His name is incalculable. His name is awe-inspiring because it is good. 
and he is good. And when we praise his name, we are giving more than just praise. Well, it's a nice name, Yahweh. It's a nice name, the Lord. It's a nice name, Joy or Grace or Ben or David. No. We are sometimes named names, and then we kind of make some people grow into those names, right? You name a woman Joy. I've known some joys that are joyless, though, right? You don't automatically grow into that name. The name of Yahweh describes who he already is. He didn't grow into his name. He always existed, and he always was who he was and is who he is and will be who he will be. He is the eternal, self-existent God of the universe. So he is praised for his goodness, and he is praised for... We will see his loving choice of his elect. His loving choice of his elect. Verse 4. For Yahweh has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his own possession. He chose the man Jacob to be the nation Israel. And he owns them. Why? Because he redeemed them. Why? Because he chose them. Why? Because it was his will. Back in Deuteronomy 7, it says, The Lord did not set his love on you. He's talking to the nation of Israel. He did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. We're going to read about that in a minute. Know therefore that Yahweh, your Elohim, he's God the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation. How long is a thousand generations? Much, much longer than a thousand years. And to those who love him and keep his commandments. Why did he choose Israel? Because he loved them. And why did he love them? Because he chose them. Same for us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved son of God. Why did he choose me? Why did he choose you? Because he chose us in love. He didn't look at me when I was in my years of rebellion and say, hey, Ben Orchard, he would make a great Christian because I would not in and of myself. He didn't choose you say, looking down the corridors of time and saying, you know, I, there, I'm going to choose her because she will choose me. No, he chose you in love even before you were debauched in sin and death. Every single one of us, all by his grace and all because of his love. For that we praise him. And praise is worship. Praise is worship. All praise is worship, but not all worship is praise. You've heard me say that before, and it's important that we understand that because you hear people often talk about, well, I love to listen to praise and worship music. All 
praise is worship, but not all worship is praise. There are many things that are part of, of worship. Prayer is part of worship. Praise is part of worship. Thanksgiving is part of worship. When you come in on Sunday mornings, fellowship is part of worship. When you greet one another, that's part of worship. When we do the, what we call the announcements, we talk about this is what is happening in the life of the church. Everything that we do on Sunday mornings is worship. There's a call to worship. There is a scripture reading. It is worship. The proclamation of the word right now, this is our worship. This is my worship to God. This is my sacrifice that I give to him. And we are all participants in worship at this very moment. It's not just the singing time. That is so narrow and simple-minded. Everything that we do on Sunday mornings is worship. The Westminster Catechism says this, What is the chief end of man? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I like the Church of Scotland's catechism. It says this, man's chief end is to enjoy God and to praise his name forever. To praise his name forever and thus to enjoy him. C.S. Lewis in Reflections in the Psalms explains that in any area of life, one naturally praises what he appreciates. In fact, that praise is part of the enjoyment. When, if, you, if you like your kids and you talk about them, that's praise because you enjoy them. If you like to go fishing, you talk about fishing, and talking about it is part of the enjoyment. If you love the Lord, you talk about him, and talking about him, praising him, is part of the enjoyment. And our chief end is to enjoy the Lord and to praise him forever. So we praise God for his character, which is good. Now we get into the body of the psalm, the cause for praise, the the, the nitty-gritty of what he's going to say, where we praise him for his sovereignty. Sovereignty is a big word. We use it all the time. It means God is over all things. He cannot not be over all things because he is the ultimate being of the universe. He is self-existent. He is outside of time. And he is sovereign over all things. And he lists them. He is sovereign over present creation. Sovereign over present creation, verses 5 through 7. And the psalmist speaks, uh, speaks for himself here. We don't know who wrote the psalm. But he says, for I know... That Yahweh is great and that our Lord is above all gods. God is high and holy and lifted up. He's immeasurably great. And so therefore he is above all so-called gods. And he's going to come back to the idols. They are not real gods or false gods. They are so-called gods. And Yahweh is greater than them all. In verse 6 he says, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. Whatever pleases him, he does that. Everything that he does is at his good pleasure in heaven and in earth and the seas and all the deep. This is the anchor theme of the psalm that God does what he pleases. And it doesn't mean that he's capricious. And it doesn't mean that he's random. That is the God of Islam. But it means he always does that which is consistent with his nature, which is good. Everything that the Lord does, he does to please himself. And he is good, therefore he pleases to do good 
as what will be seen. Since, since God is good and his name is pleasant and it is good, all that he does is out of his nature and out of his character. He cannot do otherwise. That doesn't mean everything that happens in life is good because sometimes people die and that's bad. You lose a job and that's not a good thing. You get an illness that is not good. But we can always trust that God is doing as he pleases and he does according to his nature, which is good. And so any misunderstanding that we have of the goodness of the Lord is in our humanity and in our finiteness. And there is no deficiency or insufficiency in him. All that he does, ultimately, we will see is good. We're going to see, as we read, he's going to smite the Egyptians. He's going to smite the nations out of his goodness because he is holy, because he is righteous, and he must keep his promises to his people. And therefore, he will do all those things. Everything that he does is always consistent with his goodness. But he's, he, he is over all things. Verse 7 says, he causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth, who makes lightning for the rain, who brings forth the wind from his treasures, treasuries. He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. I know some of your uh, translations say clouds. That's cheating because the poetry, it says vapors. And you have to read what he's saying. You have to understand the poetry here. There's a perfectly good word, Hebrew word for cloud, but he uses a word that means mist or vapors. I got up this morning and I saw the, the weather and it said there's going to be some, uh, some, some rain today. So I get, on, I get on the radar. I'm a weather geek and I, I see this, this, these, you don't see clouds. You see water vapor in the radar and it is moving in this clockwise fa- fashion coming out from the Pacific Ocean, going over to Idaho, up into Montana, coming our direction, out of, coming to us out of the east. Where does that come from? How does that happen? You might say, well, it's just a perfectly natural thing. Yes, it is. But throughout the scriptures, we see that God directs the weather, not channel two and not channel four. God directs the weather. They get it wrong, but God knows always. And the weather is a constant reminder of the sovereignty of God in the present, right now. This week, it was a full moon and... uh, Three nights in a row, I was out in my front yard just standing there looking at the moon. I wasn't baying at it or anything, but I just love full moons because it's just awe-inspiring. It's just glorious. It's amazing. And when we see thunderstorms today and there's lightning and there's wind, yes, (laughs) it's God. God demonstrating his sovereignty because the weatherman got it wrong. And if there's no rain this afternoon, they got it wrong again. But God knows, and he's sovereign over all things. He's sovereign over everything in the present in creation, but he's also sovereign, and we see in 8 through 12, we see his sovereignty over past redemptive history, the past redemptive history of Israel. He says in verse 8 and 9, He smote the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and beast, it's interesting. He starts with Passover, talking about the, 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 the exodus. 
God smote the firstborn of Egypt. And you know the story. God said to them, at twilight you shall kill a lamb, and you roast it, and you're going to eat it very, very, very quickly, and take some of the blood from the lamb, and you paint it on the door and the lintel. And in the middle of the night, the, the angel of death is going to come over, and those who have placed their faith in the covenant of Yahweh will be passed over. But he smote the firstborn of Pharaoh, of every one of his servants, both man and beast. And he sent signs and wonders into your midst, O Egypt, he said, upon Pharaoh and all his servants. He uses the word servants on purpose because at the very beginning of the psalm, he says, praise the Lord, O people of God. Praise him, O servants of Yahweh. And the servants of Pharaoh are smitten with judgment. Pharaoh was thought of as deity, and all of the, um, the plagues were specifically on, uh, to demonstrate to the deities of Egypt that there is no God but God. Away with you. And God exercised his judgment, and, and then he saw the pillar of fire and the pillar of the cloud that separated the, the Pharaoh's army from uh, from the Jews, and the, the waters were parted, and what did God do? He drowned Pharaoh's army. He smote them with signs and wonders. But then we see the conquest. He moves from this redemption that, uh, of the firstborn of Egypt, and how were they redeemed? By the blood of the Lamb. And now they're taken into the land. He smote many nations. He slew mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan. He slew them, and he gave them the land to to, to Israel. He gave them their land as a heritage, and a heritage of Israel to the people, because God must fulfill his covenant. He is a covenant-keeping God, and in so doing, it was a judgment on their gods as well. Chemosh and Dagon and Ashtaroth and Baal. And the people did detestable things, sacrificing their babies on, on fire, asking these gods to do for them things that they could not do for themselves. And God says, away with you because I promised this land to my people. We also see his sovereignty over the false gods the so-called gods. Verse 15, the idols of the nations are but silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Nor is there any breath at all in their mouths, and those who make them will be like them, everyone who trusts in them. These idols that they made out of God-created material, silver and gold and wood, And they looked like people or they looked like animals, but they were inanimate objects. There was no life in them. They couldn't see, they were blind. They couldn't hear, they were deaf. They couldn't speak, they were mute. And in them, there was no breath of life. So when you see, when you go into the restaurant or you go into the the grocery store and there's a Buddha there, it's just a statue. And we don't make statues, but we do fashion our own gods of family, of hobbies, of money, of career, of devices, phones and tablets, gaming consoles, entertainment, 
our nation becomes a God, our politics, our activism, so many things replace what the Lord has done for us. Idolatry is subtle and it is ever present in our lives and we must beware that all of these things are spiritually deaf, spiritually blind, spiritually dumb, and spiritually dead. And those who make them become just like them, spiritually dead. And we must be aware of that. But we have a living God, a true Redeemer, who contrasts with those worthless idols. Beware of those things that do not satisfy. Always come back to the praise of God because only He can satisfy you through true worship. So we have the call to praise where we are called to praise the Lord for His goodness. The cause to praise... Verses 5 through 18, where we see that the Lord is sovereign. He's sovereign over the past. He's sovereign over the present. He's sovereign over the future. Because one day we will stand before him in our redemption, holy and blameless before him. And how did that happen? He made us holy and blameless. He redeemed us. We're not holy and blameless before him. And when he judges the nations, he is not going to judge us for punishment. He will judge us to show that we are acquitted. And how are we acquitted? By the blood of the lamb, just as the Israelites were. And so the Lord will do that with his compassion. And we remember his name and we remember his fame in his renown, and we say it over and over and over again as we praise him each Sunday in our songs, in our words, in our testimonies. We continue to speak of the Lord in praise for all that he's done for us. But in verses 19 through 21, we have a renewed call to praise where we are to praise him wherever he dwells where he says in verses 19 and 20, I want you to listen very carefully and think about how this is different from the call to praise in the first few verses. He says, O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who revere the Lord, bless the Lord. And then he says it again in verse 21, bless the Lord. What is different about these verses from the call to praise in the first couple of verses? Anybody know? A little test. He changes words. In the beginning, he says, praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Praise servants of the Lord. Praise his name. Praise him because he's good. Praise him for his gracious choice of us. And now he says, house of Israel, bless him. House of Aaron, bless Yahweh, bless Yahweh. You who revere him, you who fear him, bless the Lord. We're to praise God from whom all blessings flow. And the word bless and the word praise, they're synonyms. But when we bless the Lord, it's, it is we recognize having recounted all the things that he's done for us, we praise them, we speak them, we recount them, we say them, and we realize that God has given us many, many blessings, and we return the blessing, therefore, with praise. 
why in the New Testament we see over and over again, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is blessed. And we praise him from whom all blessings flow and we bless his name by telling him, you are the God who has done this. And then we see that we are to praise the living God who dwells in our midst and in our lives Verse 21, he says, Blessed be the Lord from Zion who dwells in Jerusalem. And then he says, Hallelujah. He begins with Hallelujah. He ends with Hallelujah. But here at the end, he says, Blessed be God, the Lord from Zion who dwells in Jerusalem. We are to praise him where he dwells. And for the Jews, the only place that they could come and praise him, the the place that he chose to manifest his presence and to say, I'm dwelling with my people, was on Mount Zion, the city of David, in the temple, above the mercy seat. That's where his presence was known. That's where his presence was seen. That's where they praised him was in the temple. How about today? Where is he today? Do we have to make a pilgrimage to Zion? Do we have to make a pilgrimage to Israel? We went to Israel in, in, in May, some of us did. Was it necessary to go there to actually praise the Lord and to worship him? The word became flesh and tabernacled among us, lived among us. Praise the living God who dwells in our midst And in our lives, if you have the Spirit of God, you have God living in you. You are born again. Christ lives in you, the hope of glory. We are truly living in the best of times that we can praise God. He's here everywhere at Valley Bible Church, not just in Jerusalem, not just in the temple. There is no temple. He is here in our midst, but he is here in our lives. And the conclusion of the matter is this. Praise God for his sovereign rule over all things past, present, and future. And especially praise him for your redemption, for it draweth nigh. Let's stand and praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Hallelujah. You are dismissed.